Good afternoon, everyone, and Happy New Year. Thank you for taking the time to join us today. My name is Jennifer Ward, and I oversee the marketing efforts here at Cowan Capital. Our guest today is Josh Hurt, Senior Economist from Vanguard, who will discuss the economic outlook for 2023. If you have any questions during the presentation, please type them in the Q&A box. We appreciate you being here, and I'll turn it over to Tim Callen, Managing Partner at Callan Capital, to introduce our firm. Thank you, Jennifer. Tim Callen here, one of the managing partners at Callan Capital. And we have a very special guest from Vanguard, as she mentioned, Josh Hurd. But before I introduce, Josh is our speaker, and we're going to take him through various Q&As on the economy for 2023. But before doing that, there are a number of folks on the line that may not be as familiar with Callan Capital. Uh, we do have a combination of clients and other folks in the community. So just a brief background before I introduce our speaker. Uh, Callan Capital actually today is our 16th year anniversary as a wealth management firm. And prior to that, uh, my brothers and I started this company, Trevor, Ryan, Callan, and myself in 2007. And prior to that, we were with Merrill Lynch and their private banking and investment group, which is Merrill's dedicated high network channel. But we really want to roll out and start an independent boutique wealth management firm that serves more as a is a fiduciary on behalf of our clientele. So we did that in 2007. We've grown substantially over the years. We now oversee about $1.7 billion in assets under management for about 190 families. Our families typically are entrepreneurs, business owners that have been through some sort of liquidity event, such as the sale of the company and IPO or recapitalization. We also work with a number of executives of publicly traded companies that have fairly complex uh, compensation packages that we analyze. We have two offices, one here in San Diego where I'm sitting today and another in Austin, Texas with both clients and employees around the country. So that's a little bit about Callan Capital. Now to move on to why we're all here today, which is to talk about 2023 and the year ahead. As we mentioned, we have a very special guest from Vanguard on the line. Josh Hurt holds his CFA, Chartered Financial Analyst, Designation, and he is a senior economist, as I mentioned, with with Vanguard. To put that in perspective, Vanguard is the second largest firm in terms in terms of uh, asset management firm in, in terms of assets under management, with over eight trillion dollars in assets under management, second only to BlackRock. And so, Josh has a very big role at the company as a senior economist. He, were, he uh, discusses topics that include the global economy, capital markets, portfolio construction. Prior to being the economist with the firm, he worked in Vanguard's fixed income group. And so we're very pleased to have him here on the call. Welcome, Josh, to our 2023 year ahead discussion. So I'm going to kind of kick us off with our first topic, which is the odds or the chances of a recession in 2023. Do you anticipate a recession? How deep? How long if you do anticipate a recession? And what is your take on the most recent rally over the last two weeks, if you can kind of weave that into your answer as well? Sure, thanks. Starting right off, right off fire with recession. It sounds great. Um, and thanks for the kind introduction and really happy to be here to, uh, to talk to you all. Yeah, I mean, that's really the question, um, you know, that's, that we're spending a lot of time with uh, as our team internally, you know, with our trading teams. And the market's really grappling with sort of that, that question right now. I mean, I can, I can sort of put into words how we are thinking about this 
um, you know, this coming year, especially as it relates to recession. Um, you know, so I mean, I think the headline number is that, you know, we expect in our baseline outlook, a 90% probability of a recession. Um, that sounds really high. Um, I don't, I can't recall us ever having such certainty, if you will, around a recession call. But I would say that that, that hides a little bit of the nuance here. Um, you know, we're, we're really expecting a downturn at some point this year. The big question to your, to, as your question alluded to, is really how deep, how long, um, you know, and that one I think is, that one's a little squishy, you know, I mean, we, we absolutely are respecting the, uh, the movement in policy that has really shifted the entire economy over the last 12 months. It's clearly had a material impact on the capital markets as well. Um, and, but there's some really big questions around that. Um, you know, there's some very healthy balance sheets. If we look across the corporate and the consumer landscape, um, we think that's a overall should be a positive attribute here as we move into that period. Um, we also think that that firms in general are really reluctant to let go of their labor. We've just spent the better part of two years uh, where we've essentially had labor shortages. And we're probably just now starting to move into a period where firms are in a much better position to deal with uh, the demand that they have. They feel more appropriately staffed. Labor markets are still very tight. Um, but, you know, those are key questions as we kind of get into this period, um, you know, the next few months around what does that ultimately look like? You know, we're predicting a shallow recession. The 90% probability from our forecast really jumps out. I would caution that as being, um, you know, sort of binary. There's a lot of shades, but I think the overall view is that we see a downturn, but a relatively shallow downturn in 2023. Um, you know, taking the economy. Um, you know, the, the bigger question, you know, also might even be, you know, if we have time to talk about that, what is, is that enough um, to really get us through sort of what this period looks like? We've got really high inflation. We've got to cool demand in some way. It's exactly what the Fed is trying to do. They're trying to, to cool demand to the, where you can bring supply and demand a little bit more in alignment. Um, and so, you know, a big question is also whether a shallow recession will actually be enough to sort of bring down inflation. And that's an op a very open question. We think that it will, um, but it's one of those sort of solutions that um, we still need to see some, some uh, unfolding of the economy to, to sort of come about. Um, and then I would get real quick just to sort of the rally that you talked about. Yeah, markets, I mean, I think really... Um, have been positive over the last few weeks. This has been accompanied by positive macro data. I would probably single out inflation has really been that one key data point um, that's really contributing to a lot of that myriad of factors. But um, you know, I think markets are really looking at this, the, the last couple of inflation prints that we've had um, and are extrapolating that as some really positive um, uh, you know, attributes that sort of the battle against inflation is certainly not over, but we may have reached the worst of that. So I think they're reacting to that uh, first and foremost. The last few recessions that we've had were, were fairly deep, fairly quick. Uh, if you had to compare this to a prior recession, what you expect for 2023, what, what recession might you compare that to? Yeah, I mean, we've been, you know, internally, we've been kind of talking about this and thinking about it in terms of 2001-ish time frame, right? So 2000, 2001, a, a somewhat mild recession, certainly a downturn in markets. Um, 
some unemployment rises, but you didn't have the broad-based nature that you would have had in you know, prior recessions, certainly not anything even close to, to the GFC time period in 2008. So we've been looking at this um, from the standpoint of more a you know, 2001 type, uh, a shallow recession that was relatively quick, um, you know, where you had a few quarters of negative growth um, and that you were able to then uh, really start to get uh, back on the economy, back on its footing relatively quickly. Um, you know, contrast that with something like 2008, where you had, you know, over six quarters of negative um, uh, growth, something much deeper, much longer of a hole to really come out of it. We really just started to, you know, in say the 2017 to 19 period of time. So getting back a little bit to inflation, we had some some very significant prints over the summer of last year. Inflation is starting to come down. Uh, can you talk a little bit about, you know, how the Fed is going to react going forward? Have they started to achieve their ultimate goal or, or do you anticipate additional uh, headwinds that they, they create? Yeah, I think if you listen to their the way that they're talking about things, I think they're talking a touch bit tougher than they really are inside. I think there's probably some degree of relief going on because we have seen some very positive numbers, at least positive in terms of move, things moving in the right direction over the, say, the last three months. Um, but, you know, listen, we still have inflation that is, you know, depending on whether you're using headline, which includes both energy and food prices, or core, which, which strips out those measures, you're talking about inflation that is, um, you know, magnitudes above a 2% target. You know, if we want to say somewhere between five and a half and 7%, depending on what measure you use, that's still a real painful reality for most of the economy to actually deal with. It's way too high. Um, so there's a lot more work that needs to be done. But I think you've seen some of the early signs and probably a little bit of relief going on in the Fed um, in terms of the direction. Now, I would say that you're really in the early innings um, of the, the fight against inflation, however. We've really just begun to see what you could argue is the easy part of inflation coming down. Much of this is being attributed to goods inflation or goods deflation, energy price reductions. Those are actually two areas where the Fed doesn't have a huge amount of control, certainly in the energy component of that. The goods sector, you know, all of those things that we bought and people bought during the pandemic really pushed up goods prices. And you're seeing sort of the opposite of that happen right now. It's worth noting that goods inflation, you know, which has really been a big part of these nice prints, is really only responsible for about 20 to 25 percent of overall inflation. So there's a limit on how much that can actually bring down inflation. You really need to see some movement in the services sector and the core services sector, which are really driven a lot by wage gains. You know, people that are out spending on services, um, you know, tend to really be driven by the healthy wage gains that we're seeing. We're seeing wage gains that have probably been on a, uh, the order of say four, uh, four and a half to say 6%, depending on sort of the income cohort over the last year, year and a half. That's also, while that sounds like a wonderful thing uh, for households, it's also inflationary um, from the standpoint of that people will be out spending those healthy set, those healthy income gains. Um, and you've really got to see some work that happens on that front to be able to get a, a real handle on inflation if we go out a little bit further. 
And you really need to see some action in the, in the, in the labor market for that to happen. So some cooling in the labor market. So I would say that you really, from that standpoint, that's still a really big question in terms of what um, progress is being made. I would say to date, you've seen very little in these so-called sticky categories. Um, so I think there, there's still very much an unwritten uh, script in terms of how, how the next sort of uh, part of inflation goes. But I would say that the Fed's credibility, um, you know, in my judgment, in our judgment as a firm, is quite high. Um, they appear to really um, have the resolve to stick with, um, you know, whatever is necessary to bring down inflation. We've just raised rates nearly 500 basis points in a year. It's unprecedented. Um, and I think they'll really go wherever they need to go with that. So, I mean, our view, you know, on the Fed is that they're, they've done most of the work. But I think if inflation were to prove uh, more persistent um, over the course of this year, um, that that would not be something that they'd be fearful to take rates higher. So just as a reminder for folks on the line, feel free to type in your questions on the bottom. You'll see a Q&A section and we'll, we'll get to your questions towards the last 15 or 20 minutes of this call. So where, where do you anticipate the, the Fed going from here? And if we look, look at the, the futures markets, they have them going up to what is it, five and a quarter, five and a half, and then coming back down again and cutting rates towards the second half of the year. Uh, first of all, why would they do that? Why not just get to a point where they're happy and, and level it out? Why would they overshoot and then bring it back? Would be my first question. Uh, but but where do you anticipate them taking rates from here? Yeah, I mean, and I think this is probably the one of the biggest differences that we have with um, you know the market or consensus at the present moment. I mean, to get to your the first part of your question, I mean, certainly they're not going to intentionally sort of overshoot and then have to bring back what. Um, uh, you know, I think the market is really observing here through the futures pricing is that the Fed um, is going to be somewhat overzealous in their um, uh, their willingness to, to take rates higher to bring down inflation and that that is going to cause, um, you know, pain in the economy. It is going to cause a recession. And as you see the unemployment rate start to rise, that that is really where they're going to, uh, in many ways, I guess this would be my word, is capitulate to the, the soft economic data and actually start to cut rates. Um, so, you know, that would certainly be something which we don't view in that way. We think they're going to get to our present view right now is a 5% range, five to five and a quarter, and that they're going to be on hold there for the better part of 12 months. You know, we, we shouldn't, we would not expect to see any really, especially cuts out of the Fed uh, until 2024. Um, and a big part of that is just our view on the stickier components of inflation. We really don't think that, um, you know, it's going to be a case where you have a Fed really getting that high and quickly uh, and then cutting again um, just as quickly. They're going to need to keep rates restrictive and at a high level for a longer period of time than the market is pricing. Um, and so I think that's one of the big differentiators in terms of what we're seeing. Another way to say that um, is that I think the market is also just extrapolating past data very much so to the present day. Because um, frankly, anytime that you have seen a recession, when you have seen the unemployment rate start to rise, historically that has been a, a sign for the Fed to start cutting rates. We haven't seen inflation like this in 40 years. And so the job at hand is a bit different than we've had in some of the past recessions. So that we think they will need to have the resolve and they will do so 
to keep it to keep uh, rates high even through some weakness in the labor market in order to really uh, solve the inflation issue that we have at hand. Let's transition over to the labor market, talk a little bit about that. I mean, we just had a pretty good print in the latest report in terms of unemployment. Market went down on what would otherwise be seen as good news. But uh, can you talk a little bit about that and where you see the labor markets towards the end of this year? Yeah, the, the labor market is really one of those big outliers in terms of uh, you know data over the course of the last 12 months, where we have seen... Um, you know, growth very much start to soften. Um, again, we've, you know, this is somewhat intentional from the Fed. We've taken policy rates significantly over the past year, and you are seeing the economy react to that. One of the more resilient areas has been the labor market. You know, we're still growing at probably a three-month pace of, you know, 250,000 jobs per month. It's a very strong rate if you were just to look at any time period. But if you think about what sort of the just a, a regular replacement ratio or what would be a, uh, a, a non sort of very positive uh, labor market print, you know, somewhere in the 100, maybe 75,000 to 100 is about normal. If we were growing on a monthly basis at that range, that would really be the, enough to simply replace the, the workers that are leaving and have some job growth. But what we're seeing right now is certainly strong. Um, it's probably something that the Fed is, is not comfortable with, given that they really do want to slow the economy somewhat more. Um, so it's a really key area um, in terms of what, the, what 2023 looks like. Ironically, if you were just to pick two signals, the policy rate, you know, which is now you know, getting close towards 5%, will be by probably the first quarter, or the unemployment rate, the economy is growing much more like the, the labor market. The unemployment rate it's really growing at a much better pace it's somewhat outperformed what you might think with the policy rate has done so we're, it's a very meaningful factor um, we would expect that to slow down uh, somewhat to get somewhere around 150,000 by the end of this year but there's a couple of forces that are kind of working against the fed in this respect one of the big ones is demographics um, you know, we just have uh, kind of hit the, the, uh, a, a demographic period where you're going to have more people retiring just due to age factors than you have in, in you know, probably the recent decade. Structurally, it should keep labor markets tighter than otherwise would be. That's really one important factor. The other one is sort of a more subjective factor. But if you think about um, one of the things I mentioned earlier is just we've been through a period where firms have been really struggling to retain labor or to find labor. Um, and uh, now that they're in a better position, um, there's a very uh, strong view that they're not going to be as willing to let go. Um, especially if the view is, or if they are feeling a somewhat more mild recession, um, that they may be more reluctant to cut jobs um, in the face of that. You know, so we do think that there's going to be continued strength in the labor market. It's one of the reasons why we think inflation is going to be somewhat more stubborn, um, but it should start to cool as we get through the course of the year. Um, you know, if you think about the, the unemployment rate right now, where it is, we would expect that by the end of 2023, it's going to be somewhere north of four and a half, four and a half and five percent. So we do expect it to cool down significantly over the course of the year, um, you know, as policy uh, continues to have an effect. So to get from from where we're at now to, to four and a half, is that more people coming? You said there's the demographic shift, so people are leaving the workforce. So to me, that sounds like if the workforce is going to be shrinking and the unemployment rates going up. 
then the next couple of prints in the next six months are going to show uh, people being laid off more so than being hired. Yeah, I mean, we would see that more towards the, the back half of 2023, but you're exactly right. Um, you really do need to see in order to get to a, a, an unemployment rate, um, you know, beyond four and a half percent, you really do need to see layoffs. You know, and our view is that that will be concentrated mostly in growth oriented sectors. Um, so certainly some of the tech sectors that have been um, more popular and, and get, uh, gathering headlines right now, we would expect that to continue. But also areas of the economy, such as real estate, uh, we would expect to have some disproportionate amount of layoffs. But you're exactly right. You do need to see that start to occur throughout the economy in order to get that rate. So we would be looking at that towards more the, the back half of the year. And we just saw companies like Goldman Sachs announce they're laying folks off. So it's hitting bank, the banking sector, particularly um, particularly M&A and investment banking. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, if you think about, you know, some of the activities that have just, I mean, there's a couple of really big dynamics that I think will be at play. There's been some firms, you know, the, the as we move into a somewhat more normalized economy from COVID, um, uh, and especially on the back of much higher interest rates, which makes, um, you know, certain types of business activities, you know, less advantageous, M&A might be one of them. Um, uh, I would expect to see business models change. You know, it's one of our views is that, you know, when you've had growth, this has really impacted the low rate environment, um, really impacted the growth oriented sectors, um, you know, the most over, say, the last five years. But you could probably even take that further. You know, when you had interest rates at effectively zero for a decade, the hurdle rate on, um, you know, investing in growth, growth projects was, was just significantly less um, than it is today, where you have, uh, you know, a cash rate approaching 5%. Um, just has the, the entire investment landscape thinking much differently. And it's very likely that some of those firms have, have somewhat overbuilt, have overhired, and you're going to be seeing some of that effect, um, you know, take place as we kind of right size to the conditions currently. So overall, a fairly pessimistic view on 2023, but how does that translate into the investment world and how stocks, bonds, real estate, and some of the other major asset classes will perform this year. Yeah, I mean, there's always it's always um, it's always something that we do with caution in terms of extrapolating the macro view to the market view because we can see very long periods of time where they're misaligned. I mean, I would say without question, the fixed income market is going to be one area where you're, you're going to see that 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 calculus has changed immediately. We've just been in a world where interest rates were zero. Most fixed income instruments were yielding next to nothing, um, certainly on a real basis for the past decade. And we're now in a period of time where you actually have uh, you know, a cash return. Um, and as inflation moderates, that should become a real cash return. And so just the, the um, you know, we've been counseling investors to really take a hold about that changing dynamic. Um, because fixed income is now a much different asset class than it has been for the past decade. Um, you know, uh, interest rates, current interest rates are a very good predictor of future fixed income returns. And so if you just look across the full spectrum, um, you know, you should see much healthier fixed income returns than we've seen in quite a while. 
equity markets certainly much more difficult to handicap, you know, but I would say that, um, you know, of course, equity markets lead. Um, it may very well be that equity markets repriced for this entire period last year, which we saw some really unattractive returns over the course of the year. Um, but, you know, I think our sense is, is that, you know, markets have digested, um, you know, earnings revisions. We're seeing this going on right now with four quarter earnings. Um, and, you know, while most firms are actually bringing down substantially their earnings forecasts, you're seeing that markets are really reacting positively, um, you know, to the broader macro landscape. So I think there is a disconnect there. Um, you know, one thing we would say is that if you just look back at recessions, however, and valuations relative to recessions, one of the things that does stand out this period of time is if, um, you know, if we were to enter a recession, this would be one of the most highly valued recessions if you just look at sort of the S&P 500. We have a fair value model of the S&P 500 right now. That um, range is some, somewhere in the upper side of fair value. Typically in recessions, <coughs> excuse me, you've seen that valuations have contracted below fair value as they sort of price in the recession before rebounding. So it would be one, it is one area that we've just uh, have called out as this would be something that is different. Um, at the other, the other side of that, it's not, um, it'd be hard to really pull out anything that the markets haven't priced in. We've, we've essentially seen this period in this adjusting you know, policy rate environment for the last 12 months. So I think the, the markets have probably priced in a very good bit of that, um, at least for the, for the present time outside of any, you know, <clears throat> other shocks, geopolitical, um, et cetera. In terms of valuations of, of the equity markets, a lot of it's based on forward expectations of where earnings are going to come out over the course of the year. Where do you expect, do you expect the analysts to be a little bit overly optimistic on analysts' estimates? I know in this fourth quarter of, of, of last year, they brought their earnings expectations down fairly substantially, but what about the rest of 2023? Yeah, I think that's, I mean, that's, that's a big question right now. I think we're seeing that, you know, firms have essentially brought down earnings estimates from call it low double digits to mid single digits. So four or 5%, 6% uh, earnings growth. To me, that feels about right. <clears throat> um, you know, on, on some of the earnings that we're seeing coming in to date, um, you have seen some outperformance of that already. So, you know, the earnings game is always a huge public relations um, component to it. Um, but my sense is that if you're pricing in earnings in the mid, low, mid single digits, I think that's a pretty fair level given the environment um, that we'll be walking into. Um, and again, this is also on the backs of the fact that, you know, households by and large have very strong balance sheets, especially relative to history. Likewise with corporates. So outside of you know any um, uh, you know geopolitical shocks, outside of inflation remaining entrenched to the degree that the Fed has to go much higher, um, you know this sell this sets itself up for a relatively mild recession. And I think those are very fair numbers for sort of the you know the foreseeable future. So fairly optimistic on fixed income. Sounds like you're pretty neutral on on equities. Um, how about how about real estate? Anything to comment on on that asset class? Yeah, it's a, real estate is an area where we're doing a lot of work right now. I mean, I think the the the, the view is that the worst is behind us, and I would say that that's that's not a fully formed view. Um, this is work we're doing right now to sort of 
understand what's happening in the, the real estate market. Um, but certainly you, it would be very difficult to see the same degree of change take place in that uh, industry as you did last year. Right now, you're really still in the, the, the space where affordability <clears throat> has gotten absolutely crushed, where interest rates have risen and prices haven't really reacted yet. You know, we would pr pretty much say that you have a nine to 12 months in terms of prices adjusting. Um, and you really have only seen the interest rate side of that move, just starting to see some of the price reductions take place. But you really do need to see some price reductions in order to bring back buyers into the market and to normalize the affordability. So we, we have a working view, I would say right now that, um, you know, just given that we do have a very structural shortage in housing, something we've never really built up post GFC. Um, and so couple that with the fact that household formation, you do have a very large cohort that are moving through their prime home buying and family formation years. So we think that that's an element that will sort of put a floor on prices, but I would expect to see some negative or at least flat year over year prices pretty soon across, um, you know, if you just look at sort of a, a national home price basis, right now we're still at about 10% year over year growth down from about 20% where it's been over the last, you know, say two years. So we do think there will be some adjustment in the house, house the home price side of things. Um, but I think that, the, you know, you could reasonably say that the worst is behind in terms of activity. Um, you know, buyers should begin to re-enter the market somewhat um, as we normalize affordability. And just as another quick reminder, feel free to type in questions under the Q&A box at the bottom of the Zoom, and we'll get to those here shortly. Uh, let's transition over to, to Europe and, and, and Ukraine. Um, last year, in U.S. dollar terms, the EFA index outperformed the S&P 500 for the first time in, in many, many years. Um, let's talk about the stock market, their, their chances of recession over in Europe, what their outlook is for 2023, and if you can kind of weave in the war of Ukraine in there as well. Sure. Yeah. I mean, this has been another area where I think um, we we were very cautious on Europe in general through most of this year. I mean, our team in Europe um, has had a recession call for 2022, I'd say the last <clears throat> nine months or so. Only recently, as energy prices have really retrenched pretty quickly and there's been some positive news there, they actually started to, to think that this might be a situation where Europe is not technically in a recession. Um, so you are, you are seeing positive movements out of Europe, um, and most of this has really been from the standpoint of, you know, we knew the energy situation, the inflation situation in Europe is significantly more dire. Most it's being driven by a very different set of factors. You know, it's, it's almost entirely energy price related, um, which is directly attributed to the war in Ukraine. And so as they really tried to weather the winter, um, you know, it was really the view that that was going to be a very uh, difficult period to move through. What's happened is that you've seen prices come down much quicker. It's been some of that has been on the back of policy and work, but you've also seen that I think the economy has just been more resilient um, overall. And so Europe is a situation where I'd say somewhat green shoots and um, you know, the team there is actually quite positive on the, the back half of 2023. 
um, especially in Europe. And so, um, you know, the, the the Ukraine situation is clearly one of those things that uh, is, is a difficult to handicap, but can present challenges at any time. So I would say if you if you're, if you're living in a sort of status quo world with that, and that's a tough thing to say, but if you are, I think the economic consequences of what's happening in Europe um, have been weathered extremely well. Um, and, um, you know, you're seeing this, the central banks react to um, that those conditions by paring back, you know, maybe as how far that they will think they will need to go with rates. So I think generally a very positive outlook, you know, it's relative to what we would have expected six months ago, but in general, positive outlook there in Europe. And some of that's been assisted by the dollars come down a little bit over the last couple of months. What's your outlook on the dollar um, relative to international you know, basket of currencies? If we're going to be raising rates here locally, won't that attract more capital from foreign investors? Or will that be offset by them raising their own interest rates and, and money will leave the dollar and, and, and head back over to Europe? Yeah, I think that's that's very much how we see the world as well. Um, you know, you've got you had a situation where the Fed was really outpacing the rest of the world early on, and you know, I would attribute some of this this w- recent weakness that we've seen um, to the rest of the world starting to catch up somewhat. But I think as the picture kind of comes more clear, that the situation in Europe with inflation and energy prices really is uh, you know somewhat more under control, and you're not going to see you know lo- uh, you know long duration of double digit inflation there. Uh, I think it is going to, um, you know, very much come back to central bank activity. And from that standpoint, we do think that the Fed is going to continue to be, uh, you know, really leading the pack in terms of how far and how long they need to keep uh, rates high. So I would expect that, you know, if you do subscribe to, you know, the interest rate differentials, uh, that that should be something that reintroduces some dollar strength or at least holds it um, at at a reasonably fair value for the foreseeable future. And then transitioning over to, to China, a lot of news on China. They've been locked down for so many years as, as it uh, relates to COVID. They're starting to open up their economy. They just, I think it was today, they came out with a pretty lousy GDP number, 3% for their economy is quite low. But they're starting to open up again. They have obviously a billion four people um, that are going to be coming online as consumers. What's your expectation uh, for 2023 out of China? Yeah, we actually, our team in China also just recently actually upgraded the 2023 forecast. And it's very much so on the backs of exactly what you're talking about. You know, you've just had this period all during COVID um, where uh, the Chinese economy has um, been under much more stress than, um, say, ours is from the standpoint of uncertainty. Um, while they were living in sort of a zero COVID world, um, you know, it's really brought out um, extreme precautionary activity out of the private sector and out of households, especially when at any given time you could really lock down a city. Um, And so moving beyond that is clearly a positive for their economy. Um, And it should have some pretty quick results as well. I think our team um, is now expecting GDP of just over 5% in 2023 relative to what you've seen this year. So it's clearly been something that has um, hampered um, the economy over there. And we did actually have about a 30% probability in 2023 of recession in China um, while they were under uh, uh, zero COVID 
policies. So that's something that um, also very likely will get removed on our end as well. It was uh, specifically attributed to that. So I think you are seeing some positive news out of China. It should be a factor that also helps out, um, you know, uh, supply um, constraints all across the world is that does really start to open things up. Um, so I think it's a positive for the global economy. Um, there is, uh, you know, there is a calculus around how much will it benefit versus detract. You know, some of it may spur demand um, in, in the sense of travel and uh, manufacturing activity that opens back up. But I think net net, it's, it's a positive for, for the global economy as we get to a more normalized, um, you know, operations. I'll take a first audience uh, question here. And again, if you have a question, please type it in the Q&A box at the bottom of the Zoom. Is there one standard definition for what a recession is in objective terms, or is it more touchy-feely? Well, it's a really good question. I mean, there is, uh, you know, economists would look at, you know, so the in the U.S., which is different than other areas, we do have a somewhat different situation. I, I believe in most areas of the world, um, they are looking at that two quarters of negative GDP um, uh, uh, metric as, as a guide for a recession. In the U.S., we've, we take it a step further, which is we do have a specific committee that actually votes on whether it's a recession or not. And so it's a little bit, it, it is done differently. And um, they do that based on a number of factors. There isn't one specific formula, but you could, the shorthand is, is that, you know, I think the, the language around that is, is there is a significant reduction in activity. Ultimately, what it really comes down to, is there a big reduction in incomes, a big reduction in the labor market, and a big reduction in, in industrial production? Um, you know, you could kind of look at those three measures as a pretty darn good proxy for recession. Um, and so, you know, that is different that how we how we deal with things in the U.S. Two quarters has been a pretty effective shorthand for a very long time. We did work on this to sort of understand where that actually came from. It doesn't seem that it has a tremendous amount of empirical support. There is two. Why two quarters, not three quarters? Um, why not four quarters? Um, through time, that's been a really effective measure. Um, you know, obviously coming out of COVID, you've had some, you know, very different set of circumstances. And um, so I think your question is a good one. Uh, you know, I think your, your, your two negative quarters is, is pretty good. Um, but we do have an official committee that actually, you know, calls whether it's a recession here in the U.S. or not. My, my sense is that they won't call that for 2022 in the U.S., um, you know, the first two quarters were, were quite negative, um, but they were very negative for some, you know, if we mention all those three reasons that I mentioned, income, labor, industrial production, really none of those were actually dramatically, you, you probably couldn't classify those as dramatic reductions. So really huge swings in things like inventory and trade. Um, but uh, yeah, I'll leave it there. But I think, um, I think that's probably what they'll end up coming out with for 2022. Next question on the political landscape, the implications of a divided government as it relates to spending, budget, taxes, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, in, you know, depending on how you look at this, I mean, as an economist, we, we would look at that as a somewhat positive aspect in that, um, you know, uh, one of the longer term issues that the U.S. Um, has had and will continue to have perhaps even more so after COVID is just dealing with the, the debt burden that's been taken on 
um, certainly over COVID, but this was an issue well beyond before COVID. Um, and so to the degree that we can get annual spending via deficits under more control, that's a positive attribute. Spending has been pretty considerable over the last few years, and I think a divided government is going to um, you know, very likely limit that. So the role that fiscal will play in um, you know, economic growth over the next uh, you know, two years will be, should be you know, meaningfully reduced. Um, you know, outside of that, you know, this is typically looked at as a period where you have a lot of, you know, positioning and angling, not much on the policy side. So I think that's, that is something that we're working on is to identify areas that might emerge. But I, I would say at the moment, fiscal, um, certainly taking a back seat, um, you know, to some of these other elements as we really go through the next two years of the election cycle. But then they just snuck through a pretty large budget there in December that got very little headlines. I think it was on, you know, for about a week. Was it 1.3 or 1.4 trillion spending for next year? Um, Absolutely. How did they how did they get that done so quickly without much of a, a fight through Congress? Well, in some respects, I'm sure that was by design, given how it was, you know, very close to uh, the holidays, not not as nearly as much attention or press around those numbers. But listen, anytime you're talking about over a trillion dollars in spending, that's a really big number. We didn't get we didn't previously, um, you know, we're not used to seeing numbers like that pre-COVID very often at all. Um, you know, COVID, I think, kind of jolted the, the number game, so to speak, and um, you know, somehow some of these larger numbers are now much more palatable to the public. But the reality is, is that, um, uh, you know, we've been taking on considerably more debt. Despite our sort of debt to GDP ratio, it is sustainable as long as we can get our fiscal house in order sort of on an annual basis, um, you know, by the deficits. Um, you know, remember, the, the U.S. does have a, have a special position because of the reserve currency, that does help in these measures, um, but you know it would be something that we would caution, um, you know, certainly any of the, any administration on um, uh, continuing continuing with sort of the the type of spending that's taken place, you know, over the recent history. And just to kind of hone in a little bit more on the on the federal debt, and you know, you mentioned high spending, but also the increase in interest rates has an impact as the debt kind of rolls. Is there, a, is there a picture or a situation you might see over the next decade where it can kind of get out of hand? If, if the interest rates stay high and they're rolling that debt over, I don't know what it is, 20% per year um, at the higher interest rate level, does that at some point become out of control? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, this is a key question. You know, the work that we've done on it sort of suggests this. It's that, <clears throat> you know, just like someone who has a credit card, if you're earning more than you're spending or if you're earning more than your interest rate, there is a theory to be said that you can grow your way out of a debt issue. You know, in the, in the economy wide, that would look like GDP relative to the interest rate that you're paying on debt. And so when interest rates were very low, even a modest growth rate in GDP, say 3% relative to a weighted average interest rate. Uh, you know, that the Fed uh, or that the government was paying of probably um, a few percent, if that, you know, you could theoretically, given a long enough time horizon, grow your way out of it. So that's one thing. That calculus has changed now that interest rates are high. Um, it will take some time to actually work through the, the portfolio of the government. 
Um, and so there will be, it will be some delay. It's not as if those rates start to hit in the magnitude of what they are now immediately, um, but they will work their way through. And that is, that does change the calculus. It's no longer possible just to grow your way out, even just based on those two measures. The other thing that is problematic with the grow your way out theory is that if you're adding more on an annual basis and economy-wide, this will look like adding to the deficit, you know, as we have been, that also creates a very significant problem for that calculus. You really can't grow your way out when you're adding more each year, especially in substantial magnitudes. I mean, so the work that we have done would suggest that, you know, the economy uh, actually, this, despite the high debt to GDP ratio, it's really not the best metric in determining whether something is sustainable from a debt perspective or not. There actually is really, it's really difficult to pin down one metric where you could say that, um, you know, that is sort of the, the, the be all and end all when it comes up to sustainability. Because of the US's status um, in the world, um, they do have some special privileges. And the reality is, is that the market plays a very big role in determining when is enough enough. Um, if you know, we woke up tomorrow and the market decided that the US uh, is on an unsustainable fiscal path and actually took action on that, that could really be very problematic immediately you know, relative to all these calculations or time horizons. Um, so, I mean, I think what we would suggest is that if the deficit cannot become more sustainable under 5% of GDP over the next couple of years, that, um, that will create pressures from market participants who are going to have a big role to play in sort of determining what is sustainable and what isn't. Um, so we focus on the annual deficit and it's got to get, um, you know, it's got to get paired back. But if deficits are growing at five and the GDP is growing two to three, doesn't that eventually just by the math? That's the opposite of growing your way out of it. Yeah, exactly. That I mean, it's really the three things together. It's deficit, it's GDP, it's interest cost. Um, it's all of those things. I mean, if you think about it, it's it's probably tough to live in a world very long where GDP is growing. Um, you know, interest rates and GDP are, you know, should be somewhat related. Unless you have a stagflation type scenario, we are not growing and you have high inflation and then very likely very high interest rates. Um, you know, outside of that, you would expect them to normalize in some respect. Um, and so I think we do still have a view that given longer term factors like demographics, like technology, the interest rates today are should be sort of structurally lower than they have been historically. So if we get back to that, um, you know, that ratio should normalize. And I'm not suggesting in any way that to minimize uh, sort of the, the burden. Um, it's a real issue. Uh, it's very difficult to pin down quantitatively, you know, sort of like when does the point when is the point reached where enough is enough? Um, certainly in the U.S. where you have these other factors. But I mean, I think that the path that we're on is certainly one that is not sustainable, um, you know, over the long haul. And again, if you have a question, please feel free to type it in the Q&A section. We have a question here on once a little deeper dive on the housing market. I know you touched on it a little bit earlier, but the fact that we kind of came into this thing with uh, being underbuilt in terms of housing and how that plays out with these higher interest rates. Yeah, it's that's something we're trying to pin down better through research right now. I mean, uh, you know, I would say that that is one of, that's one of the elements that is is with our view that there is the, the worst is behind us. Um, 
you have we've really never built up. I mean, you could look at a graph of sort of the the housing relative to your prime housing formation age, which is about 25 to 45. Really, 25 to 35 is your sweet spot in terms of household formation. Um, and if you look at that demographic that's moving through and the number of houses, uh, single family homes that we have uh, currently built, you've just seen that the ratio of those is at an all time low. It really has been, it's been very low since the GFC, but as this cohort starts to move through, it's getting lower and lower. Um, so, I mean, if you just think in a simple supply demand framework, um, you know, that should be something that on a national basis and real estate is very local. Uh, it certainly is, is at least regional, um, but on a national basis, that underbuilding is something that very much we think is going to keep a floor on prices. I mean, right now we think that, uh, that essentially zero year over year prices is really where we are right now. The data just hasn't quite caught up to it yet. Um, and so when you start to see, if you were to say there's another, you know, say 10% decline in, in home prices nationally, Whereas interest rates, you know, we're expecting we're we're about 90% of the way there in our view. If 5% ends up being correct, so rates shouldn't move significantly further. You know, I think the actual the the 30-year mortgage, if you use that as the benchmark, is actually overshot a decent bit. Probably a range of around six. Um, you know, maybe just north of six is probably the appropriate national average for the 30-year. If you're um, if if Fed funds doesn't have to go significantly higher. Um, or if the 10 year even stays anchored at around where it is currently, say 350 to 375 range. Um, so you should, you should have a material improvement in affordability, which is really the thing that's really, um, you know, hurt purchases, um, you know, right now. So I think that's, that's one of the key, that is one of the key aspects that is helping out that view. Um, you know, but activity has really fallen off a cliff. Um, so I think that's just, that would be one area that I would, that we're continuing to kind of press ourselves on that. Um, we've really never seen activity. I mean, you can look at some of the, the charts, whether you're looking at, um, you know, home buyer traffic, prospective buyers, sales, it's fallen almost as fast as it did during just March of 2020. Um, so, you know, think about COVID, everything came to a stop. I mean, it, it, it's, it's that dramatic the activity reduction in the housing market. So, um, you know, it's, 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 it's very material, but I think that, you know, as you start to see some price normalization and this cycle typically starts with your home builders, they're a little bit less um, uh, sensitive to say what the price of your neighbor's home is. You know, everybody from a, is looking at what their, their house was worth or what their neighbor's house just sold for. The home builders are a little bit more um, business-like, um, if you will, when it comes to these um, types of situations, because they're seeing what the new homes that were, were being built were under construction. Those completions have to price. And just, you know, the reality is you're not going to get the price that you may have sought out when you, when you set out to build. Um, so you're starting to see some haircuts in some of the home builder activity. I think that's really what gets the process started. We have a question from the audience on the uh, upcoming congressional battles in, in the debt ceiling, which is which is coming out in the news now. Is there a potential impact for the government to shut down and, and potentially affect short-term payments of, of T-bills? Yeah, I mean, I've been burned by this many times in the past. You have been covering growth <clears throat> for the U.S. for a number of years. And, um, you know, so don't take, don't take my response to be somewhat jaded, but... I have seen that 
the the political posturing that this is being that is used for um, tends to outweigh the alarm that gets caused in the press, um, and it certainly is a material aspect. Um, but I think that um, we never let it get to that point, but we do let it get right up to the razor's edge, um, so that um, politically, uh, you know, um, that can be used really at, at, to its most. Um, you know, to its highest level. And so I think that, um, you know, my sense is that this is another situation like that, um, where you do tend to hear about it a lot. And there is, you know, an X date where we can't pay our bills anymore. We become well aware of that. Um, uh, but my sense is that it's just too big a deal to really um, let, let go. My sense is that would be something that happens again this time. Um, but, you know, each one of these is new. Um, and um, you know, so I wouldn't downplay it entirely. But that's been my experience, you know, you know, covering this. I think you know, politicians have paid the price on holding the debt ceiling hostage over these negotiations. Is that what they, they've kind of learned their lesson and won't do that again? I think so. I mean, the public's pretty fed up with it. I think um, you know, I would think that uh, you know, maybe I'm close to it, or maybe we as a team are very close to it. You know, so it does feel like every year we kind of go through the drill really pulling all the research together. Um, <clears throat> you know, we get a lot of questions from clients around what would happen if we stopped paying our bills, how would markets price in, um, you know, well, how would they react to defaulting on debt, those types of situations. Um, the reality is it's just too big of a magnitude to really, you know, for our politicians to let that happen. Um, I can't see it happening. Um, I hope I hope I'm right. <laughs> just more of a comment from the audience, believing politicians, ever learn lessons is very slippery slope. <laughs> I guess that's uh, it's pretty accurate. Um, anything on, on Social Security you might want to add in there in terms of the future of that program in terms of, of the overall debt? Is it going to be very different looking in 10 years from now? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, we have a team um, that's focused on retirement and behavioral aspects. It's actually working on this. Um, uh, you know, I would say that uh, it's a real hot button issue, obviously. Um, I'm one who has just looked at the high level data on that, and it's really hard to see some aspects materially not changing. Um, but my sense is that those will, as have, have been, somewhat gradual, continuing to push out retirement dates or collection dates. Um, you know, but for the younger cohorts, I think it's very difficult to see that something material isn't done. But very hot button issue politically. Um, and so I think that, um, you know, always handled sort of gradually, um, you know, in terms of changes to those types of programs, it's a really big one. Um, but it's really hard to look at from a number standpoint, um, you know, working out for younger cohorts without material changes. Right. We're coming up to the end of our hour. And I want to say a special thank you to Josh and the Vanguard uh, group for helping us with this call. A lot of clients that are on the line have investments with Vanguard. We really appreciate your support and how you support our firm uh, by, by, by becoming available for these economic updates. And for the listeners on, on the call, um, here's my contact information, tim at callencapital.com. Please consider us a resource to your friends, family, people you care about. These are very volatile times in both the economic as well as the financial markets and please consider Callan Capital as a resource uh, should the need arise. Thank you so much for participating, and we hope you enjoy the rest of your week. Thanks again, Josh. Thanks, Jim.